So let's read Galatians chapter 4, all the way to 5.1. Oh, thank you, the screen's on. Uh, starting from 4.1 to 5.1. Here is what Paul writes to the Galatian church. What I am saying is that as long as an heir is under age, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not God's. But now that you know God, or, or rather, are known by God, how is it? You are turning back to those weak and miserable forces. Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. I plead with you, brothers and sisters, become like me, for I became like you. You didn't mean a wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. And even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. Where then is your blessing of me now? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? These people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may have zeal for them. It is fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good, and and to be so always, not just when I'm with you. My dear children, for who I am again in the the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I am perplexed about you. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh. But his son by the free woman was born as a result of a divine promise. These things are to be taken figuratively. The women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai. It bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free. She is our mother, for it is written, Be glad, barren woman, you who never bore a child. Shout for joy and cry aloud, you who were never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Now, you brothers and sisters, Like Isaac, are children of promise. At that time, the son born according to the flesh persecuted the son born by the power of the spirit. It is the same now. But what does scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers and sisters, 
we are not children of the slave woman, but the free woman. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning once again, everyone. It's a very unusual chapter, isn't it? In case you thought I hadn't picked up that you understood everything that was read just then really easily, it's the word of the Lord, but the word of the Lord sometimes has complexities about it. And this chapter certainly uh, does. Paul begins quite obviously with the um, plan of God over time to make um, us his sons, but then suddenly and seemingly people think somewhat randomly. He goes into a long personal plea recalling his close relationship with the Galatians and only then to uh, go into this uh, figurative sort of uh, interpretation of uh, the account of Abraham's sons and their mothers, Hagar and Sarah, interpreting them in a way that no preacher would be allowed to do today with any other part uh, of scripture. Um, And yet, as I sort of pondered this week, um, this whole chapter and sort of thought about is there something that holds it together? I think there is a theme that loosely uh, does that following on from chapter 3 last week that holds the three elements together. You might remember that in chapters 1 and 2, Paul's aim was to defend, to defend his apostleship and hence the truth of the gospel that he preached as coming directly from Jesus Christ and not something that human people made up. In chapters 3 and 4, Paul's argument then moves on um, to show that the content of this gospel is consistent with the Old Testament and indeed is the fulfilment of the promises, uh, all the promises that were given to Abraham. We saw last week with uh, Steamer in chapter 3 how Paul had shown that Abraham's true descendants are those who put their faith in Christ uh, rather than those seeking justification from God by seeking to obey the law. Hence, there are no human barriers at all to relationship with God, whether Jew, Greek, slave, free, male, female, all, every human being comes to God equally the same way. And it is because every believer is described as an heir, therefore, at the end of chapter 3, That brings us, I think, about the nature of chapter 4. Paul's final three arguments to convince the Galatians not to turn back to a law-keeping Judaism centre around, I think, the new family that God has formed. Uh, What I've entitled um, the move from slaves to sons. The move from slaves to sons. Now the title's in your booklet but not the outline, didn't get it together by the beginning of the month um, so I'm going to reveal it as I go. Um, I think this notion of the family of God has created, has created and of which every believer is a part as a brother or a sister is what undergirds the different aspects of what Paul says in chapter 4. So first of all Paul begins uh, with God and gives an overall summary of God's uh, gracious plan to turn slaves into sons. This is really the first section from verses 1 to 11. Um, And Paul uses the pronouns we and you 
a lot in this chapter and sometimes it's a bit confusing as to um, exactly who he's addressing. Jewish Christians, Gentile Christians, Galatia or both. But the one thing uh, he begins with here that's true of all people, every human being, before they come to Christ is the slavery of all humanity to the elemental spirits. And we see this in verses 1 to 3 and again in verses 8 to 9. 1 to 3. What I'm saying is that as long as an heir is underage, he is no different from a slave. Although he owns the whole estate, the heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we are underage, we are in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. And then... In verse 8, formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? Now I want you to note the pronouns. Go back to verse 3, <coughs> in 1 to 3. Um, Paul is probably referring here in these verses to his Jewish brothers and sisters. This is most likely because he's extending the conversation about what it means to be, from the previous section in chapter 3, about an heir. Um, How the law had acted as a guardian even to the heirs of the estate, who were, uh, by natural means, the Jews who had been given the law when God had formed the nation of Israel. However, when Paul says we in verse uh, 3, as you see there, so also when we were underage, um, I think he's primarily speaking to Jews as the natural inheritors of God's covenant promises. But when he goes to verse 8, he says, Formerly, when you did not know God, um, and I think now he's changed to his Gentile brothers and sisters, who he says did not know God and in fact worshipped gods that were no gods at all. And of course that's not something you could say of the Jews um, at all. But regardless of what your pre-Christian state was, Paul says whether Jew or Gentile, every person was a slave to the elemental spirits of the world. In verse uh, 9 there, uh, the NIV translates here as miserable forces, um, but it's actually the same word as verse 3. So what are these elemental forces? The meaning of the word um, has been much debated uh, by commentators, but I think fairly decisive for its meaning here is the fact that in using the word in verse 9 to encompass in verse 8 those who by nature are not gods, then Paul must be referring to something like the demonic forces and spirits of the world. I think he would mean something similar to what he says in Ephesians 2 when he refers to his Gentile brothers and sisters and he refers to their former life and he says, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. What is utterly staggering here, just think about it for a moment, What's utterly staggering here is that Paul regards Jewish life under the law as the same sort of slavery 
as the service and worship of pagan gods. He regards their life under the law, now as it's become, as the same as if they were worshipping pagan gods. That's shocking to a Jew. It would have been absolutely shocking. For the law was given by God himself through Moses, which in itself, as Paul says in Romans 7, is just and good. But the law had become twisted, twisted by the demonic forces, conning human beings, the Pharisees and the Jews of the day, indeed the Jews to this day, into thinking that they could be justified by the law. Or in today's language, that they could be justified by being good people. And in so doing, these forces have plunged human beings into a terrible slavery and bondage they cannot escape. The human predicament is a bit like being told you have a cancer that's inoperable and nothing can be done. It's devastating. But notice the but at the beginning of verse 4. But even though we are powerless to rescue ourselves from such slavery, God in his mercy um, and grace has created a way out. A way through um, via the sending of Christ to bring about redemption from such bondage. Verses 4 and 5. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. When the time had fully come, when in God's eyes the time for God's son to enter the world as a human being was right, when the circumstances of history, you might say, were appropriate, God sent his son to redeem humankind. When he says to say born of a woman or born under the law, he means he totally absorbed totally came in and absorbed the human condition. All the vulnerable conditions of human life were taken by him. He came in fear, loneliness, suffering, temptation, doubt and ultimately, of course, God-forsakenness. Though he didn't sin, a fact the New Testament repeats several times, he belonged to this transitory, sinful world and was subject to death. He had to be if he was to redeem us. Paul doesn't really go into any detail here as to how Christ achieved redemption. He's already referred to Christ's death for our sins in chapter 1 verse 4 and last week we saw in chapter 3 that the cross was seen as a curse put on Jesus, the curse that we deserve that he took himself. The reason I think he doesn't go into detail here about how that happens, is that Paul's emphasis here is much more on what redemption through Jesus has brought about. Namely, the adoption of sons um, whereby we call Abba, Father, through the giving of the Spirit. In, oh, that's the wrong one. We'll get to that. Yes, I know, you can... Maybe I haven't got verses 6 and 7 in there. I might have missed that out. Let me read them to you. 
Because you are son, his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave but God's child and since you're God's child, God has also made you his heir. God has done what might have seemed impossible. He's turned slaves into sons. Now sonship in the ancient world was about two things, status and intimacy. In the patriarchal world of the time, sons were always the heirs of the estate, the inheritors of all that the father owned. And sons were the ones who had the most intimate relationship with the father. Paul says through faith in Jesus alone, God has adopted us into sonship, into family intimacy with him and heirs to all that is God. How do we know that? Well, he says the reality of this intimacy is the pouring out of the spirit into our hearts through whom we cry, Abba, Father. The very intimate address Jesus used himself in speaking with God the Father. (coughs) Now, if you ponder that for a moment, that's utterly incredible. It's a truth that we should ponder more and more to appreciate how wonderful that is. A couple of weeks ago, Meredith and I um, went to see Hugh Jackman um, while he was in Adelaide as part of his um, world tour. He really is a master showman. I think there's no doubt about that. But he also seems to be a really nice bloke. Um, There were people around, there was a sort of keyhole stage and there were people around uh, the stage with various signs. (coughs) Um, When we were there, a 13-year-old girl had a sign that said, Dance with me, Hugh. And uh, he saw it. And he got her up on stage and did exactly that. I don't think it's something she'll ever forget. He's now in Perth. And a couple of nights ago, I saw an interview on the news with a woman at the show there who was suffering from breast cancer. (coughs) Her sign read like this. Please hug me, Hugh. My boobs are trying to kill me. That was her sign. And... um, He saw it and stopped what he was doing. He got down from the stage, took the lady up, had a conversation with her. Her name was Kylie Beard um, for what was an incredible moment. (coughs) In the news interview, she was (coughs) almost—excuse me—in the news interview, she was almost brought to tears by the fact that someone like Hugh Jackman, at a show of thousands, (coughs) would be taken would have taken time in the middle of what he was doing to share a very intimate moment with a a bald-headed sufferer. It was wonderful and said something about Hugh Jackman as a person. And as I was pondering over these verses this week, (coughs) I thought... Um, this is something like what Paul is saying here about what God has done. But on a far grander scale. Thank you. (laughs) I thought that's what you must be doing. (coughs) 
on a far grander scale. The God of the universe has taken notice of you and me. In slavery and suffering and through Jesus brought us up on stage. In intimate relationship with him. Pouring his spirit into our hearts so that now we call upon him at any time uh, with the intimacy in the language that we would call the equivalent of saying daddy. It surely would not be inappropriate for us when we think about this to be moved to tears in the same way the more we simply take in the incredible grace and generosity of God who has turned each one who puts their faith in Jesus from a slave to a son (coughs) and both the family intimacy and rights to inheritance that he has given with it. Hence, Paul can't believe that anybody who had experienced this would want to give that up and go back to a slavery that he describes in verse 10 as observing days and months and seasons and years. A clear reference to the Jewish law. Paul is fearful. He has wasted his time on them. And that is what leads him in the next section, I think, to his very personal appeal in verses 12 to 20. His personal appeal not to abandon him. Let me just read, it's a long section, let me just read verses 12 to 14 and 19 to 20. I plead with you, brothers and sisters, become like me, for I became like you. You did me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you, and even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. (coughs) Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ himself and then on to 19 and 20 my dear children for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I am perplexed about you the truth of what God had done for the Galatians in making them sons um, in his family leads Paul to a very personal plea because the circumstances in which he came to preach the gospel to the Galatians meant that they were very special to him. (coughs) Now clearly we're not told of the details. There's a whole lot more he would like to know. But Paul didn't need to say it because obviously the Galatians and he knew exactly what he meant. It seems Paul had had an illness when he came to Galatia, one that was normally somewhat offensive to people. For people to bear. Normally it would lead to their rejection of him. But they had so understood the value of the gospel message Paul brought that they were able to look past that. Indeed, Paul says regarding him as an angel of God, treating him as Jesus Christ himself, was there with them. The Galatians had become close family with Paul as brothers and sisters and he was devastated and perplexed 
at the possibility that they might abandon Christ and him as well. So his appeal could be put, I think, in these terms. Become like him as one desperate to see them fully formed in Christ. See, Paul appeals that they become like him. But what he means is become like he was a Jew who is no longer beholden to the legalistic way of the law, but freely devoted to Christ through faith in the redemption he had achieved. You see, this was not an appeal uh, for a crowd to praise him. It was the appeal of a person who saw him losing his family. On a par, really, with the sort of pain that comes when families literally do lose a loved one. Paul was desperate not to lose those brothers and sisters he had come to love because of their mutual devotion to Christ and their experience of the Spirit in their hearts. When I was a young Christian in my 20s, a long time ago, I knew a man who was, uh, to a certain extent, uh, I saw him in the same terms as the Galatians saw Paul. He was about as close to God as you could get, I thought. I could never get away from visiting him without him praying for me in some form or another. I tried hard, but he told me to sit down and I'd pray. Um, And his prayer was always so spontaneous and passionate. It really was like God was sitting there with us. When he was preaching one night, because he he lived nearby, he he preached every now and then at our church, (coughs) he said something I'd never forgotten. He asked each person there uh, to turn for a moment to the person next to them, either side. And he said, do you know it's your job to make sure that that person gets to heaven? You see, he was urging us to see a responsibility and a care for fellow members of our congregation as Paul does here for the Galatians. (coughs) If one of your friends here at Grove began to come less and less, would it matter to you? Would you feel like part of your family was about to be ripped away? Would it lead you to pray and do everything you could to help that person return and renew their relationship to Christ? I have to say that I fear the individualism of our culture means I might not. As believers here today, friends, we will be family for eternity. We need to pray that we might be like Paul and have a genuine concern to see one another, as Paul states in verse 9, to see one another formed in Christ. Now Paul contrasts here his own passion with the Galatians, for the Galatians with that of the Judaizers. There's a big difference between Paul and the Judaizers. They are zealous 
but their motives are entirely different. If Paul urges them to become like him, he certainly doesn't want them to be like them. He says, as those zealous to make followers only for themselves. In verse 17, those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may have zeal for them. The Judaizers were zealous, but only zealous for themselves, keeping their own following and power (coughs) over people as a result. They have no interest in seeing the Galatians formed in Christ at all. I think this is a very important warning for the church today. Much of our culture, friends, is very personality driven, is it not? And I'm afraid the church is subject to the same temptations. Churches form around leaders who are talented, good-looking, charismatic, well-groomed. Now, on the surface, they may appear to be devoted to Christ and as time passes, we sometimes find that there is really very little substance they get lost on the praise of their followers who are devastated when that popular leader gives up the faith. We always need to remember to choose our leaders wisely, to ask what is their aim? Who do they draw you to? Is their passion to see you growing and maturing in Christ or do they just like the attention? Paul's plea and agony over the Galatians, like the pains, he says, is like the pains of childbirth for him. Not that he knew what that was. It arises out of a passion to see them fully devoted to Christ. And that's the way it should always be when thinking about leadership in the church. So in verses 1 to 7, Paul has outlined... um, how God has brought about a new family of sons through Christ and giving the Spirit. This leads him in verses 12 to 20 to issue a personal plea for the Galatians not to abandon that family and especially the apostle himself who had enjoyed such a close relationship with them. Paul's third and final argument to convince the Galatians that justification is by faith and not observing law has to do with Paul's allegory about Abraham's sons. Verses 21 to 24, the first part. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but the son by the free woman was born as a result of the divine promise. These things are to be taken figuratively. The woman represents two covenants, one covenant from Mount Sinai bears children who are slaves. This is Hagar. Well, I obviously didn't put enough in there. Anyway, that'll do. An allegory. What's an allegory? An allegory takes an historical account of an event that you'd normally read and invests it with a deeper symbolic meaning lying underneath the text. One not obvious at the surface level. And this sure isn't. Only the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Spirit, could certainly do this. 
Paul uses, you see, the historical story of the birth of Abraham's two sons, Ishmael and Isaac, and the relationship between the two mothers, Hagar and Sarah, to show that the true seed of Abraham come from the child through whom God gave his promises to bless all the nations through Abraham, namely Isaac. Isaac is the child of promise, Ishmael the child of slavery. Paul seems to be particularly referring to Genesis 21, 9 to 12. And in fact, he actually quotes Genesis 21, 10 a bit later in verse 30. This is what it says. We're at the stage, Ishmael's already born and Isaac's just been born as well. And uh, this is what it says. But Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar the Egyptian had born to Abraham was mocking. And she said to Abraham, get rid of the slave woman and her son, for that woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. But God said to him, do not be so distressed about the boy and your slave woman. Listen to what Sarah tells you, because it's through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Now Paul draws a a symbolic figurative parallel based on this passage. And I think rather than try and take you all the way through it, it's easier to grasp graphically in its basic movements. This is what I've tried to do. Okay, this is what he says. So Hagar is the woman, she was their slave, Sarah's slave. She's the slave woman. She gave birth to Ishmael um, and he's seen to be according to the flesh. And um, Paul says she represents Mount Sinai's law, the law given at Mount Sinai and Jerusalem today. That is Jerusalem then as it was. Represents a covenant of slaves, a covenant of law keepers. Sarah, on the other hand, is the free woman. She gave birth to Isaac, miraculously. Remember? They're 100 years old. Never thought they could have children. God performed a miracle to bring Isaac. And that's why he's the, um, the child of promise. Um, he may refer to Mount Zion. I'll say why in a minute. Um, but he refers, Paul says, to Jerusalem above. The heavenly Jerusalem, referred to in the book of Hebrews. And his is the covenant of promise, the covenant of free people. Do you get that? That's obvious. Just repeat that to me, will you? All that sort of uh, detail. Now you might wonder, why in the world did Paul even bother? Why, why did Paul even think it was necessary to go back to Hagar and Sarah? He was going well beforehand. Why did he have to go back to Hagar and Sarah? Well, one suggestion I think which has merit, um, though we can't be sure, is that the Judaizers, you see, were telling the Galatian Gentiles that because the promises of God go back to Abraham, that you needed to become of one of his descendants. And you did that by obeying the Jewish law. If that was the case, then Paul's aim is to show that not everybody born from the line of Abraham was a child of the promise. 
only those from the line of Isaac. Promises which he has made clear in chapter 3 have been fulfilled in Christ through faith alone and not the law. Because Sarah is called barren in Genesis, Paul quotes from Isaiah 54 verse 1, in case you're wondering why that's there as well, in support of the fulfilment of the Babylonian captivity coming back so that the barren woman is now actually going to have more kids than ever if she had a husband. That's Sarah, you see, because now she's got everyone who puts faith in Christ. She is the mother of promise. Whereas, um, of course, he quotes from uh, Genesis 21.10 for Hagar to say, get rid of the slave woman in order that the Judaizers um, get a call for the Galatians, never get a call for the Galatians to submit under the law again. This call, he summarises then to end the passage in chapter 5, verse 1. I call it Paul's call to stand firm in the freedom of Christ. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Now this verse is clearly transitional. It ends this passage in chapter 4 and it also begins what he's going to say in chapter 5 where he, where he will explain um, what it means to live in freedom for Christ. Friends, I would say that of all the things you could say about the Christian life, probably the most fundamental foundation of the Christian life for Paul is freedom. Of everything you could say, the most fundamental foundation of the Christian life for Paul is freedom. But it's not a freedom as it's commonly conceived in our society today. That is, freedom of choice or freedom to do as we please would be the common ideas. Of course, this sort of freedom is important, one we want to maintain in our society within certain limits. But we ought to recognise um, that that sort of freedom, the freedom to do what we please, the freedom of choice, is somewhat illusory. Just take one simple example, the freedom to vote. We're free in our society to vote for who we please. Well, here's my confession. I've been a Labor voter almost my entire life. Sorry to you Liberal liberal diehards, but two or three times I've crossed the floor and it's been an emotional agony to do so. I could give you good Christian reasons for my voting in this way. But if I'm honest, I also know that it's been a factor of my culture and upbringing. Being brought up in a working class home where the political mantra was the working man never received anything from the Liberals. You see, while we have freedom of choice on the surface to do what we want, 
what we in fact want and desire, we'll always be influenced and manipulated by a number of factors, such as family background, culture, the environment, publicity, and most importantly, from a biblical point of view, the powerful drives within us that make up our sinful nature, sexual, material and political. To these things and inner drives, we have indeed become slaves because left to ourselves, we're imprisoned by them. That is why we need laws and why God's law was given to highlight and restrain sin. So what looks like a form of real freedom is in fact a form of slavery. As one writer puts it, imprisoned to the harsh task masters of sin, the law and death. Christian freedom, however, is a complete liberation from these taskmasters. A complete change in allegiances. Though the redemption of Christ, through the redemption of Christ and the inward working of the Spirit, we are freed from the compulsion to serve the inward workings of sin, human selfishness and rebellion. We are freed to serve the one we were always created to serve. Christian freedom is a freedom from the guilt of all sin and progressively from sin itself until Christ comes and makes us perfect. It is a freedom we in no way can work for. It has been secured by Christ given to every person who simply puts their faith in him. It's very precious. We must stand firm in it. We must always watch out for any temptations to put ourselves back under any form of rules and regulations which Paul calls in Galatians chapter 5 verse 1 there a yoke of slavery. Friends, Christian freedom is the most wonderful gift of God. Is there a greater joy than to know that the relationship with the one who made you and for eternity will perfect you uh, depends on no more than the invitation to trust in Christ. I doubt it. As Jesus himself said in John chapter 8, verse 36, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I'm into that.